0: This is the BBC.
1: Oedipus Rex, Oedipus the King, ancient Greek tragedy turned into a stage drama by Igor Stravinsky, reacting against overblown operatic convention and creating something more static, more mechanistic, both musically and on stage, presenting the dark tragedy of Oedipus with fatalistic detachment. It's challenging to stage and just as tricky in its way to record as we're about to find out. I'm Andrew McGregor, presenter of Record Review on BBC Radio 3, and in this podcast edition of Building a Library, reviewer Kate Mollison compares recordings of Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex, asking us to consider just what lurks behind the stylized rituals as we explore recordings ranging from the most recent to the composer's own.
2: Spectateurs, vous allez entendre une version latine. Dédit pour roi, et voir des tableaux vivants qui ne correspondent pas aux paroles, afin de vous épargner tout effort d'oreille et de mémoire, et comme l'opéra oratorio ne conserve des scènes qu'un certain aspect monumental, je vous rappellerai au fur et à
3: mesure le drame de Sophocle. »
0: the vintage vowels of Jean Cocteau, recorded on stage at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées in 1952. Behind him was a stage curtain that he had designed himself, an explosion of post-Cubist primitivism, complete with togas and popping eyeballs. Beside him, baton in hand, was Igor Stravinsky. What we just heard was the prologue to Oedipus Rex. Words by Cocteau, music by Stravinsky. The strange, excessively formalised rituals of this score have long flummoxed critical opinion. Is it an opera? Maybe it's an oratorio. Certainly Stravinsky wanted to play at stylized Greek drama. Cocteau wrote a stage play in French that Stravinsky then had translated back into Ciceronian Latin. Stravinsky claimed at the time that he wasn't interested in human stories but instead in the mechanisms of fate. So this was Stravinsky rejecting what he considered the overblown emotional drama of Verismo and the suggestive liminal spaces of symbolism – Above all, what Oedipus Rex was not going to be was the dark, psychological murk of late Romantic Expressionism. And yet, as you'll hear in many of the performances that I'm about to share with you, these characters are so much more than mechanised puppets in an austere ritual. As we've already heard, the drama is narrated. A speaker tells us exactly what's about to unfold. And while the text of the drama is in Latin, the narration is supposed to be in the home language of the audience. The speaker is like some kind of preemptive talking surtitle.
2: You are about to hear a Latin version of King Oedipus. This version is an opera oratorio based on the tragedy by Sophocles but preserving only a certain monumental aspect of its various scenes. I shall recall the story as we go along. Oedipus, unknown to himself, contends with supernatural powers, those unsleeping deities who watch us from a world beyond death. At the moment of his birth, a snare was laid for him, and you will see the snare closing. Now... The drama. Thebes is prostrate. After the Sphinx, a plague breaks out. The chorus implores Oedipus to save his city. Since Oedipus has vanquished the Sphinx, he promises.
0: It's increasingly rare to get the narration of Oedipus Rex translated into the home language of the audience even though that is what Stravinsky intended. I guess there's some bogus notion of authenticity, which means that conductors everywhere will now reach for Cocteau's original. But in early decades, there were recordings in German, Italian, and an English translation by E.E. Cummings, no less. And that's a version that we just heard from the very plummy John Westbrook under Stravinsky's own baton in 1961. Stravinsky later claimed that he hated the speaker device. That disturbing series of interruptions is what he called it. But he was adamant that presenting the grim tragedy of Oedipus and Tocasta with such almost ironic detachment would demonstrate that the characters, and probably we listeners too, are no more than playthings of the bored and blasé gods. So what about the music? Stravinsky referred to the score unlovingly as a mirtzbilt. It's the dada term for a picture made out of junk. He said that he used whatever style was to hand. The chorus of male voices takes the role of a Greek chorus, or when it's done with as much crisp, seething energy as a Monteverdi choir under John Eliot Gardner, it takes the role of the chorus in a Bach passion, commentating... Gossiping, conjecturing, egging on the drama.
4: Deus meus, Deus meus,
0: Oedipus, the plague is upon us. Such gripping attack and nimbleness from the Monteverdi Choir in a live performance with the London Symphony Orchestra recorded at the Barbican in London in 2013. There are six solo roles in this opera, although a couple of them can be doubled. The scene is Thebes, where Queen Jocasta is married to Oedipus, who everyone thinks comes from a noble lineage in Corinth. Jocasta's brother is Creon, and in a much-lauded recording conducted by Seiji Ozawa, that role is sung by Bryn Terfel, a genial, youthful, oily, scarpia sort of Creon. Brin as Creon, and that recording with the Japanese Saito Kinen Orchestra under Seiji Ozawa, has a standout cast, as will become clear as we go along. But in the clip that I just played you, you can also already get a hint of what becomes the problem here, a lack of dynamism in the orchestral sound, which is seriously problematic because the orchestral momentum in this opera has just got to be as unstoppable as the forces of fate that engulf poor Oedipus. Another heavyweight contender is the account from Colin Davis in 1983. It was his first year as chief conductor of the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra in Munich. Incidentally, he shares with Seiji Ozawa that possible trump card that is Jessie Norman as Jocasta. But we'll come to her. First, let's hear the humongous sound of Siegmund Nimsgern singing Creon.
3: Is I fervent?
0: Sigmund Nimsgern as Creon, with the epic sweep of Colin Davis conducting the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra. That recording is narrated by Michel Piccoli, grand monsieur of French cinema, and the performance has a wonderful sense of grandeur all round. But is it biting or brutal enough? I'm not convinced. So Creon has declared that the murderer of Laius must be hiding in Thebes and that the city will be plagued until the crime is avenged. Now Oedipus responds... Singing for George Shulte lets meet an elderly Peter Pears in 1976, the year that his partner Benjamin Britten died. This is a very choked, very noble and gentle Oedipus. Possibly more civil servant than king, but still incredibly moving. Peter appears with the London Philharmonic Orchestra and George Schulte. That account is narrated in English by Alec McCowan with a combination of stiff upper lip and hammed-up melodrama that's a bit hard to take seriously. For a very different Oedipus, try Philip Langridge, huge dramatic tenor in a 1993 recording with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra sounding generally swampy under James Levine. blown oratorio than swift, punchy drama. That was Philip Langridge as Oedipus. And at this point in the drama, the penny has not yet dropped. Oedipus is boasting of his skills in dealing with the powers of darkness. He's vowed to turn Thebes inside out in order to find this murderer. Up pops the speaker to make sure that we don't get too absorbed in the suspension of disbelief. And I want to introduce you to one of the most underwhelming Oedipus narrators on disc. Do you recognize this voice?
2: Oedipus interroge la fontaine de vérité. Tiresias le <inaudible> devint. Tiresias évite de répondre. Il n'ignore plus que Oedipus est joué par des dieux sans cœur. Ce silence irrites Oedipus. Il accuse Créon de vouloir le trône et Thérésias d'être son complice. Révolté par cette attitude injuste, Thérésias se décide. La fontaine parle. Voici l'oracle. L'assassin du roi est un roi.
0: the voice of Gérard Depardieu, recorded with Valery Gergiev and the forces of the Mariinsky Theatre in 2010, which was just a couple of years before Vladimir Putin granted Depardieu Russian citizenship. In any case, that account from Gergiev and the Mariinsky is generally overfed and underconvincing. None of the incisive attack that is needed to keep this drama alive. By way of contrast, let's hear the only female narrator available in my selection – and there's no reason other than convention that narrators of this piece have tended overwhelmingly to be men. Fanny Ardan is completely arresting. She's stern, she's punchy but unhysterical. She's got immense presence and a potent gift for storytelling. And what a great voice.
4: Adip, interroge la fontaine de verité. Tiresias, le devin. Tiresias evite de répondre. Il n'ignore plus qu'Oedipe est joué par les dieux sans cœur. Ce silence irrite Oedipe. Il accuse Créon de vouloir le trône et Tirésias d'être son complice. Révolté par cette attitude injuste, Thirésias se décide. La fontaine parle. Voici l'oracle. L'assassin du roi est un roi.
0: singing from the Monteverdi Choir under John Elliot Gardner and the timpani and bass lines from the London Symphony Orchestra so full of dramatic tension. Fanny Ardant proving why a female voice can absolutely summon the necessary gravitas as the speaker. As she warned us there, Oedipus is still deluded as he interrogates the blind seer Tiresias. Tiresias is the only person who knows the truth, and finally he spells it out. The murderer of the king is our king. The response to this news varies from Oedipus to Oedipus. Thomas Moser summons some impressive statesmanlike imploring for Colin Davis. Peter Schreier has vigour and intensity for Seiji Ozawa, while Vincent Caulf, for Eszepecca Salin makes a limpid, snake-like Oedipus. Doesn't this sound a wee bit disingenuous? imaginous Oedipus, a bit too appeasing by halves. That recording was made in 1991 and features stunningly sleek playing from the Swedish Radio Symphony Orchestra under Esa Pekka Salinin, a suave, ice-cold performance of tizzled intensity. And I know that Stravinsky originally claimed that he wanted his characters to be masked, archetypes. But what about an Oedipus who shows cracks of desperation and vulnerability and human temper? Now this is a character who I can believe in. The Monteverdi Choir, an unstoppable force under John Eliot Gardner with the London Symphony Orchestra driving home the message. And Stuart Skelton and Oedipus, who absolutely recognises his own tragic helplessness against all that momentum of fate. It's a devastating performance. Proud, broken, tender, angry. It reminded me of watching Stuart Skelton as a bruised and bruising Peter Grimes and that resemblance is no bad thing. The Gloria is deliberately dilated. It's like opening the curtains too fast on a bright morning. Our ears just don't have time to adjust to the new light. It's supposed to be abrasive. And for Stravinsky, why have one shock tactic when you can have two? The Gloria appears twice, at the end of the first act and then again after the narrator has introduced act two. A few conductors, including Colin Davis, ignore that instruction and cut the second time but I think the bizarre cyclical loop is integral to the construct of ritual here and to the feeling of being trapped.
2: Three roads, crossroads, mark well those words. They horrify Oedipus. He remembers how
1: arriving from
2: Corinth before encountering the Sphinx, he killed an old man where three roads meet. If Laius of Thebes were that man, what then? Oedipus cannot return to Corinth having been threatened by the oracle with a double crime to kill his father and to marry his mother. He is afraid. No!
0: A very stately take on the Act Two Gloria from George Sholty and the London Philharmonic Orchestra with the John Aldiss Choir. That was Alec Macowan as a very clean cut narrator, such well groomed vowels. As he flagged up, uh, at last we now meet Jocasta. She's Oedipus's wife, and unfortunately, she's also his mother. And in this opera, she's the only woman in an otherwise male world. <laughs> Tatiana Troyanos, her words totally lost but immense amounts of pathos. She plays Jocasta for Leonard Bernstein in a recording with the Boston Symphony Orchestra in 1972. Jocasta's lines are deep, florid and seductive like a toga-clad carmen. Anne-Sophie von Otter is captivating for Essepeka Salanin. Salonen. There's a sculpted statuesque dignity in this very grief-stricken habanera. Cold wind blows over Thebes, and Sophie von Otter as the majestic ice queen in that recording with Esa-Pekka Salonen and the Swedish Radio Symphony Orchestra. There are many resplendent jacastas. It's a role that brings out the white heat and the full-voiced ire in the best mezzos. Mariana Lipojek is heartbreakingly maternal in an otherwise nondescript account from Franz welser merst and the London Philharmonic Orchestra. The icon is Jessie Norman. She has incomparable, indignant power as Jacasta. She sang it in the nineteen nineties for Seiji Ozawa, but she recorded it first for Colin Davis. That is what I would call gravitas, blood-red passion, the most heavyweight mezzo-coloured voice from Jesse Norman owning the role of Jocasta. That was the 1983 recording with Colin Davis and the ultra-plush Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra. A decade later, Jesse Norman recorded the role again with Seiji Ozawa and the Saito Kenan Orchestra. like that can't alter the direction of fate, then nothing can. Jessie Norman, arguably an even more fearsome Jocasta when she recorded it with Seiji Ozawa in the early 1990s. But now the orchestral sound is like it's in another room, an oddly indistinct colour palette from the Saito Keenan band. Maybe it's an issue with the way that the ensemble was recorded because I can't imagine Ozawa letting those kind of details slip. The point is, neither Colin Davis nor Seiji Ozawa gets the kind of sizzling hot orchestral playing and chorus singing that John Elliott Gardner does. And as it turns out, his Jocasta is not too shabby. Jennifer Johnston plays the role with righteous fury. Okay, she doesn't have the claret weight of Norman, who does, but she has intelligence, suppleness, and a fearsome attack. I'll play you her performance just as the chorus starts to mutter trivium, trivium, the linchpin word of the entire opera. Trivium, three roads, the fateful crossroads. Jennifer Johnston, with the lithe support of the London Symphony Orchestra and the Monteverdi Choir. We also heard Stuart Skelton as Oedipus, and he's now admitting that he is seriously afraid. Did she speak of trivium? Because, as it happens, on his way from Corinth to Thebes, he might just have killed an old man at those very crossroads. Jocasta still refuses to believe the oracle, but Oedipus is starting to panic. He summons the shepherd who witnessed the crime. For Esa Pekka Salinin, that shepherd comes in the shape of a cameo performance from the great Swedish tenor Nikolai Gedda about a decade before he retired. Here he is with Simon Estes as the messenger, explaining that little Oedipus was in fact found on the mountain as a baby, so not the son of the king of Corinth after all. The junctions in the music here are like the jutting angles of a cubist collage, and once again, listen to the implacable way that Salonen handles it. Nikolai Gedda with Simon Estes and Esa-Pekka Salonen conducting the Swedish Radio Symphony Orchestra. The chorus finally spells it out. Oedipus is the son of Laius and Jocasta, and that means he is the murderer of his father and yes, the husband of his mother. I want to play you Stuart Skelton's moment of realization. Listen to the way that he spits out the word kekidi and the way he so delicately laments the terrible truth. Looks facta est, all is made clear. <laughs>
3: Don't we never
0: Stuart Skelton's Oedipus, a complex, wrenching, very human breakdown. But if you thought that was all getting a bit too, well, emotional, Stravinsky does not let us wallow. The speaker rips us back to the here and now, announcing that we're about to hear the famous monologue describing Jocasta's death – Was that line meant as a jab at Philistine audiences who didn't know their classics? Stravinsky later described it as intolerable snobbery and in any case, the monologue never arrives. Instead, we get the messenger delivering what Stravinsky called a four-word singing telegram. And just to add to the pomp, the speaker is heralded by trumpet fanfares that Stravinsky later said reminded him of the now badly tarnished trumpets of early 20th century Fox. He did have a point.
2: And now you will hear the messenger describe your caster's doom. He is almost unable to speak. The chorus takes his part and helps him to tell how the queen has hanged herself and how Oedipus has pierced his eyes with her golden pin. Now follows the epilogue. The king is caught. He must show himself to all as an incestuous monster, a parricide, a madman. Gently, his people drive him away. Farewell. Farewell, King Oedipus. You were loved.
0: That was John Westbrook laying on thick with Stravinsky himself conducting the fanfares that later embarrassed him greatly. Stravinsky used so many methods to distance us from this drama. The choice of Latin, the speaker's crude interruptions, the static stage direction for the singers, the comic mash-up of musical styles from Bach Passions to Rossini to Gilbert and Sullivan and even the can-can at the Folie Bergère. And yet, in the right hands, this piece will tear you apart. So which hands are the right ones? Stravinsky himself recorded it several times. The 1961 version that we just heard from is upfront and dry, willfully clinical, narrated in daft, pompous English in the atmosphere of a television studio. Stravinsky wasn't the greatest conductor. He generally prioritised rhythm over beauty of tone and definitely over expression. It's instructive to hear it, but do we always need to choose what the composer wanted? I would say no. Personally, I want more momentum, more impact from the chorus and the orchestra, and more humanity from the soloists. Esa Pekka Salonen gives us sleek, suave, chilly, chiselled intensity with the Swedish Radio Symphony Orchestra. Of the two accounts featuring the mighty Jesse Norman as Jacasta, both have pros and cons – Colin Davis and the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra sound very august. He takes to heart the nature of this as statuesque drama. It's a mellow and expansive sound. It's plush. For me, it's too plush. Seiji Ozawa with the Saito Kenan Orchestra has rougher edges, and the orchestral detail gets a bit swamped in favour of solo voices and what solo voices they are, a fantastic presence from the cast. And possibly the problems are mainly the fault of the recording mix, but I can't overlook that because the orchestra and choir just have to be the driving force behind this grim drama. So my top choice can only be John Elliot Gardner's account with the London Symphony Orchestra and the Monteverdi Choir. There is no weak link in this recording. Stuart Skelton's Oedipus, utterly credible as a proud and broken and complicated man. Jennifer Johnston as an incandescent Jocasta. Fanny Ardin with her inflamed narration. The Monteverdi Choir, a force unto itself with unstoppable dramatic thrust. And the playing of the London Symphony Orchestra. It's crisp, it's dynamic, it's able to turn on a dime. I'll give the last word to the gents of the Monteverdi Choir and to the cellos, basses and timpani of the London Symphony Orchestra. We loved you, Oedipus. We bid you farewell. Stravinsky would denounce that line as the most offensive phrase of all, a blot of sentimentality wholly alien to the manners of the work. Igor, I disagree. Whether he liked it or not, and it's hard to tell what he actually thought given his tendency for fickle hindsight, There is profound emotional heft in this strange drama. And sung like this, it is devastating to the end.
1: Farewell to the King, the end of Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex in a recording that for reviewer Kate Mollison has no weak links from Stuart Skelton's Oedipus to Jennifer Johnston's Jocasta, Fanny Ardent's fiery narration and, of course, the dramatic urgency of the Monteverdi Choir and the London Symphony Orchestra conducted by Sir John Elliot Gardner. It's Kate's overall building a library recommendation. You'll find Gardner's live recording of Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex on LSO Live. It's a hybrid SACD. For full details, check out the Record Review website, where you'll also find information about Kate's other favourites. You've been listening to a podcast edition of Building a Library. Next time, William Myvel joins me to compare recordings of Robert Schumann's Symphony No. 4, which exists in two versions because Schumann revised the scoring a decade after he'd written it, and that's caused all kinds of issues when it comes to recording it, as I'm sure we'll be finding out. You can listen live if you join me, Andrew McGregor, for Record Review, Saturday mornings from 9 on BBC Radio 3, 90 to 93 FM, online and on digital radio. This is a download from the BBC. For more information and for terms of use, go to bbc.co.uk slash radio 3.